to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding The reading of the Word of God this morning comes from Romans 8, 28 through 30. And this can be found uh, in your Bibles, in your pew Bibles, which is the blue book on page 944. And before we start, the, the Bible is one grand story of redemption. Um, it's, it's a story of God chasing after his people and um, people who were Blind and deaf, God gives them eyes to see and ears to hear. And in light of, of drawing us to himself and sanctifying us, he promises nothing or promises us nothing but good all through this process. Um, so in light of that promise that God gives us, let us hear the very word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray together. Lord God, we come to you acknowledging, confessing to you that in so many ways we have not lived out the beauty and glory of this text. Lord, either we've not believed that you are in control. We've thought that your back was turned on us. We thought that you must be neglectful. We've assumed because of our sins that there is no way that you could continue to do good to us. We've doubted your goodness. We've doubted your forgiveness. Lord, we've made you out to be something other than the gracious Father who has given His Son for us. And Lord, we don't read our circumstances as we should. We don't read them as coming from the hand of a gracious God. We, Lord, therefore lose so much worship, so much joy, so much energy, so much confidence in you, and we don't recognize so often the real thing that you're doing, which Paul says here, the good is that you will one day conform us to the image of Christ and everything 
must lead to that. Everything must work toward that. And so, Lord, also we must confess that many times the reason is we don't like the good that you promise. We'd like another good. We, we would like comfort more than holiness. We, we would like physical things and physical well-being more than character. And we find it difficult to do with what James says, to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because we're not that wild about the endurance that James talks about and the character he talks about. Lord, we have to confess we really don't like that swap sometimes. We don't like the trade. We confess to you, Lord, it's because we, we're we suspicious of you. We confess it's because we still have so much worldly-mindedness, even though in Christ we've been delivered from this present world, this present evil age. We confess, Lord, that our affections are not fixed upon you as they should and fixed upon solely this thing of wanting to be pleasing to God and wanting to be conformed to Christ. And also, Lord, we don't see the the glory of that and the happiness of it. We don't believe in the the ecstasy of of, of obedience and, and the pleasure and the joy of becoming more like Christ. And we confess these things to you. We pray that you would build us up in this, your holy word. And as we consider, Lord, what it means that you set your love upon us before the foundation of the world, that, that this would greatly encourage us. And that we would draw from that and connect the dots that having loved us before, you love us now, you love us forever. And that that will set the tone of our lives. It will set the course, Lord. It will set the climate and the atmosphere in which we live that we, lost and broken and sinful though we are, we are loved by the everlasting God in Christ Jesus. Lord, may we not think that we're being humble when we deny that. May we realize that we are being prideful and we're rejecting you and we're, it's unbelief as you rejected Israel when they did not believe in your salvation. They did not believe in your goodness that you would give them the land. And we so often are like them. Lord, remove this unbelief. Give us the boldness of assurance that we began our service with in Hebrews chapter 10 that Jesus has done an excellent job and we have been brought into the presence of the mighty God. Oh Lord, give us that faith. Give us that grace to exalt you and glorify you. Of your good, uh, of your goodness and greatness, to glorify your grace, as Paul so often says in Ephesians one, to the praise of the glory of His grace. May we be to the praise of the glory of Your grace. And Lord, we pray for our brother Clay in this mass that has entangled his intestines. And oh Lord, we we pray that it will be benign. We pray that it will be benign, Lord. In your sovereignty, make it so. We pray that whatever it is, that they will find exactly what the issue is, exactly how to treat it, and they will bring the very best of medical technology to bear, and that, Lord, this can be completely removed from his body, 
both this and any other traces of anything that may be there, and that you will that through the the very best of treatments, surgery and whatever else, Lord, that this will be completely removed from Clay's body. We we pray that you would protect him. We we pray that you would give great wisdom at every stage for every doctor, every nurse, every technician. And Lord, we pray that whatever anybody misses or doesn't do, that by your sovereign grace and power, you will do it. Lord, you can work with or without means. You are the sovereign God. Lord Jesus, we saw you heal left and right, anything and everything. We see your power to heal. There is no limit, O Lord, we pray. Bring it about. And we pray that you would fix their hope upon Christ, that you will be near to Clay and Monique, that you will bless them. And Lord, that they will rest in you, that they will know the peace that passes all understanding. Shalom will dictate their lives and they will be to the praise of your glory. We pray for our sister Carol as she has begun the chemo and we pray that you will thanking you for this first session. And Lord, we pray that you would keep her from being sick, that you will sustain her in the difficulty of this and the radiation that follows. And again, we pray, Lord, remove every scrap of this disease from her. Heal her, clean her, Lord, completely of it. We thank you for others in our congregation like Larry Brannigan, Lord, who have had such healing for so many years from cancer. We praise your great name that you've done these things among us, Lord. Uh, We praise your name for Sherry and the good result of her surgery. And we pray for her blessing and continued surgeries, Lord. We pray that uh, also for the Masons who are now in China, who have received this second Chinese girl with the little hands that aren't fully formed. We thank you for that what we've seen on the blog so far of her crying so desperately that first day being put with these strange-looking people from America. And then three days later to see her just laughing with her new mom. We thank you for Nadia and your providence to bring her there and her amazing help in loving this new little girl. We thank you for this girl and the wonderful deliverance that you will come among us by your grace, give them a safe trip home, and we thank you for the hospital that's going to take up her cause and do surgery on those little hands for free. Lord, we, we're amazed at your providence. Oh, Lord God, what a God you are. May we give them all the support and love uh, that they need in caring for this new child. Lord, we come to your word. We come, Lord, feed us, nourish us, bless us, set us upon your glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. For those of you who uh, may be visiting, uh, didn't come here last week, we started studying this section, Romans 8, 28 through 30, last week. This is uh, one of those, if you're unfamiliar with it or with things about Christianity, this is like one of the big texts, you know, one of the most famous texts, probably as used, uh, most used texts of all of Scripture almost, Romans 8.28. We saw last week that 
this promise that all things work together for good has a specific definition in terms of that good. It's not good as to comfort. It's not good to even say that you'll live this many years or you'll have this kind of health or this kind of wealth or anything of that sort. But the good is narrowly defined. Of course, it's the greatest good. It's the only good. And that is that we would progressively and finally be completely conformed to Jesus Christ. And as I said last week, Dr. Kelly, Doug Kelly, a professor of mine uh, years ago, uh, said that the only tragedy for any human being is that they would not be conformed to the glory of God. That's the only tragedy that could occur to anybody, is not to be conformed to the glory of God. And so we also saw, and this is kind of interesting because this begins to wedge its way into our thinking some, that we like to think of that verse and hold on to that verse, all things work together for good, but we many times in Christendom erase the next two verses upon which it's built because then it talks about God loved us beforehand and predestined everything to that final end that we would be glorified with Christ. So we tend to think, yes, all things work together for good. Predestination, <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to hold a predestination. But actually, Paul's argument is the reason all things work together for that good of bringing us into conformity to Christ is because God has predestined this to occur. So we, as we said last week, if, if you're going to... Uh, throw away the idea of predestination, though it's right there in Scripture, and just say, I reject that, then you have to reject all things work together because they're found together. Uh, they hold together in this passage. Now, I want to spend some time today talking about this word for new because this is a very much misunderstood term and it really is at the crux of a historical divide, you might say, in the way people look at this doctrine of election, teaching of election. And I hope, though, that it won't be just we're learning some more doctrine here, but this will be a rich embrace of the amazing love of God that was given to us even before the world began and defines our life now and forever. That's what we want to get to. And we want to beware of erasing that by trying, as we're going to say, to fix God, as it were. Uh, God, you know, really doesn't need fixing. Um, and we better not be trying to do that. So we're going to look headlong at this uh, topic of election and, and foreknowledge. Now, a popular... Now, I've just given these passages here for your own study where you might... I've already broken out in a sweat. We're going to look at all these verses. But um, no, you can do that on your own. But uh, the first two, an Old Testament and New Testament, really have the word election or uh, predestination in them. And then the next passage, passages that use other terms, uh, talk about the same thing without using the exact words of election or predestination. Now, I do that because one battle line that somebody might take, and because... Humanly speaking, we seem to want to resist the idea. Maybe many of us here have said, when I first heard about election or predestination, I rejected it or I didn't understand it or I didn't like it. And it took me some time. And some of you may be in that situation even now to say, you know, I just, I just can't buy that. Um, so one, one line of defense, though, is just to say there is no election. 
But the problem with that, and almost anybody in, who has thought about the issue to any degree realizes, you can't just say it's not there because it's in the Bible so many times, right? It's just there. And that's why I've listed these verses so that you can just see we're called the elect over and over. There's a passage like Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now what that means in the Greek is he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay? <laughs> Same thing. Um, and then in the next breath, Paul says, in love, he predestined us to adoption. And what's interesting there is that Paul has begun that passage, blessed be the name of God who is, blessed be the name of the Lord, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly places. So it's a, it's a praise section. We're lifting up the name of God. And he says, he starts right there, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us to adoption. It's part of his praise. It's part of his happiness. It's part of his joy. It's part of his enjoyment of God, his delight in the greatness of God's love that was given us before the foundation of the world. Praise be his name. So this, to, to ignore the word itself and say it doesn't exist... Uh, is not really this, a strong battle point. Now, what's the, what's the fallback position? And that's the one we're going to look at today. The fallback position historically has been, well, okay, I see that he chooses, I see that he elects, because we're called elect, et cetera, et cetera. But here's how it works. He looks ahead to see who believes, and then he picks them. Okay? Now, you can see the effort or, or the desire here, it's to get God off the hook. See? Because if God just chooses, then he chooses some and not others. And, and that's very repugnant to us by nature. We just tend to think, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. So we're going to fix God and say, look, we'll, we'll come in and help you, God. Okay? This is what we're going to do. You're going to look ahead. You're going to see who believes. Then it's not resting on your shoulders. You're not responsible. All you did is look forward to see who believed. You picked them. Nobody can blame you for that. You're off the hook. Look what I did for you. I mean, that, not they say that, but that's kind of the sense, though, you see. It's the feeling that that fixes the whole issue. Because, and, and then how this text comes into play, and this is why I'm dealing with it with this text, they tend to say the word for knew, there it is. You see, before he predestined, he knew beforehand who would believe. And so this, this is a primary text to go to to say, see, first he knows who believes, then he predestines. And so that's why we want to look at this and see the true nature. And what I want to suggest, not suggest to you, declare to you, okay, that this is the past, this is what this word means. It really means that he loved us beforehand and therefore predestined us. And I want to say, to take that away, to boil that away, this sense that God actually loved us before the foundation of the world, and, and then to, to so boil it away and bleed it so that now all it means is God looked ahead to see who will believe. Oh, that's a sad thing. It's a really sad thing. 
And we're robbed of so much assurance, so much richness in terms of our contemplation of God's greatness and goodness. But I think, I think we resist his sovereignty by nature. Human beings just resist his sovereignty. So beware. All of us have to beware. Am I bringing something to the text that's not there? Or am I just saying, Lord, whatever you are, whoever you are, let the text eat. Okay? Let it eat. Let it just say to me what it is. And don't let me bring something to it. And that's always our effort here. It's, it's the effort of the church at large to try to come to the Word and hear what the Word is saying itself. And I think we're also resistant to God being different than us. You know, Psalm 50, verse 21, Paul, uh, God says, You thought I was altogether like you. Kind of interesting. You thought of me like yourself. Same thing in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. So in that sense, you see, let's not make him out to be a human being or let him fit our standards. He's got to fit our idea of how we pick a football team, for instance, or something like this, or pick our sandlot baseball team, and and God must pick some way like that. No, God's not like us. And let's let God be God and let him declare to us who he is and what he has done for us. And... If you do this, I believe you will enter into the same praises as Paul, rejoicing, rejoicing in the sovereignty of God and finding comfort and strength and all the more believing all things will work together for my good. He's loved me before the foundation of the world. So it's for your comfort, it's for your strength, it's for your living out your life with, with uh, energy and joy and love to other people that that we would uh, seek to understand these things. All right, so let's look then at some of the problems uh, associated with this, uh, what I call fiddling with the doctrine of election. The first is that it, in, in wanting to get, keep God from being, from, from uh, I'm sorry, playing favorites, it promotes favoritism in the worst way, Okay. In hoping to keep God from playing favorites, it promotes favoritism in the worst way. Now, what people will say when they talk about God looking ahead to see faith, they'll say, now faith is neither good nor bad. It's just faith. It's just helpless dependence upon God. So there's nothing that's commendable about faith. There's nothing that's really good or bad about faith. It's just dependence. That's all it is. The reason they have to say that is because it doesn't need to look like God's looking ahead to seeing something good in somebody. You get it? So you've got to make that faith not be something especially good. However, in Scripture, faith is very good. Faith is the essential response to God. Faith is at the heart of obedience. Faith is the primary thing we're to give to God, is to entrust ourselves to God. It's our whole life's response to God is that of faith. And I have here in your paper, uh, as it says in Hebrews, it speaks of beware of a heart that's being hardened with evil, a, a, a heart of evil unbelief. Because unbelief, evil, you see. Uh, in Numbers fourteen eleven, it says that not to believe in God, he says, they despise me because they don't believe in me. That's a very strong thing. 
Um, in Hebrews 3, it talks about because of their unbelief, they fell in the wilderness. And notice, as I have here in Psalm 78, the Lord heard it was full of wrath as the fire was kindled against Jacob and anger amounted against Israel because they did not believe in God. They didn't trust in his salvation. The anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones, subdued the choice men. In spite of all this, they sinned. How? They didn't believe. They didn't trust him. And as the writer of Hebrews says in 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We please Him through faith. This delights Him that we trust in Him. Uh, in fact, faith and obedience are, uh, are, are uh, exchanged in John 3.36. It says, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will have eternal life. Those who do not obey uh, will be condemned. So faith and obedience are just taken as two sides of a coin. Um, and in John 6, when Jesus is asked, what is the work that God requires? He says that you believe in him who he has sent. So you see, faith is, is in fact, without faith, there's nothing good about us. It's the essential good that comes about in our lives, that we begin to trust him. Therefore, we love him and obey him. And so to look ahead and see who will believe is simply to look ahead and see who the good people are going to be. That's the sad thing about that view. To look ahead and say, now, who's going to have the character to trust me? Who, who's going to believe in me when the gospel comes? Oh, look, oh gosh, Darwin's not going to believe in me when the gospel comes as I play it out. I'm not going to pick him then. What? Oh, look, Ben Dice, he's going to believe in me. I'm going to pick Ben because he's going to trust in me. That's the view, though I'm sure they wouldn't put it that way, but that's how it comes out to being, you know, in that sense. Looking ahead to see who's going to trust him, who's going to obey him, who's going to follow and serve and imitate and love him, all the things that come with faith. I'm going to pick those. I'm not going to pick the other ones. And so, according to this view, God has picked, if faith, without faith, it's, we can't please God, then God looks ahead to see who are the pleasing people to Him. Who are the pleasing people to God? So, if we're so lost and broken down and hurt and corrupt that we'll not believe on our own, well, we don't get chosen. Only the best get chosen. But for those of us who are sunk in the concrete of unbelief, who are so evil we can't please God and we don't seek Him and we don't understand Him and we don't submit to Him, then we, there's no hope of us being chosen because we're too lost. No election for us. Um, of course, the irony is that God says there's no one good. There's no one who seeks me. So in that sense, for God to look ahead and say, what's in the heart of man as I look down the pike? Whoa, no one would seek me. No one wants me by heart, by nature. That's if God, if we look at it that way, this is what God sees in the world. And so uh, in this sense, you see, God plays favorites by checking out the fruit and picking the good fruit, so to speak seeing who is uh, likely to believe or for sure to believe and, and leaving all the others out of that 
election and choice. And so in trying to fix favoritism, it promotes favoritism in that way. And in James chapter 2, as I have on the next page, he shows how favoritism works because uh, they... A rich person comes in, they bring him down, and they seat him in the front. And a poor person comes, and they say, hey, you know, this down here is a little more the favorite area. There's a nice seat back for you on rows 36 for you right here. Um, and, and he blasts this, of course. We must not choose one over another because of his wealth or lack of it. And if God chooses us for something in ourselves, then that's favoritism. If he picks us for something that he finds in one person over another, then he's showing favoritism. And that person could look to the next one and say, I'm sorry I didn't pick you, but you must have seen something in me. You must have seen something good, you know, because he picked me and not you. Um, and we would say this is historically known as conditional election or unconditional election. And we'd say it's unconditional. It's not because of any condition that we met. It's not because I stood out from the crowd of unbelievingly, hopelessly, selfish, rebellious people and he chose me, therefore, because he saw my faith. Now, I don't think any Christian really talks like that, but sometimes our theologies talk like that, our professed theologies and so, does God, why does God choose a person? We say emphatically, no reason in that person. No reason in that person. Um, and we take comfort in the fact that God picks every kind of person regardless of how good or evil or moral or immoral or rich or poor, successful, failing, criminal, not criminal. None of that matters. <laughs> he chooses how he chooses as we'll see in some texts. And it doesn't, uh, it doesn't depend upon us. And that's why I've got that next uh, passage, Deuteronomy 7. Listen to how he sets it forth. Talking about Israel, the Lord did not set his love on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, because for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. Now back it up and, and, and see what he says. Why did he set his love on you and choose you? Because he loved you. He said, why did I love you? Because I loved you. Yeah, but I mean, why? You know, like why me? Because I loved you. Because it came from me and I chose to love you. So it it sets us free from thinking, I must have been certain good for him to pick me. And if I stop being that good, he's going to push me away. It's comforting to know, in spite of all the evil he saw in me, he still chose to love me. And he's not going to throw me away if I discover some new problem in my life. Because he saw it from the beginning. He sees more than I can see. And he still set his love upon me. And so we can't accuse him of playing favorites. He doesn't look ahead and check this out. He chooses the broken and the weak and the helpless and the corrupt and the lost and the paralyzed and the blind and the dead. That's not playing favorites. That's picking lost people due to reasons within himself that we don't know. But it's certainly not because he's finding something good in one person and not another. And then he's picking them for that. 
now, <clears throat> obviously, it's so different for us. You're picking a team in basketball. You know, you're gonna, you're not gonna go like this. You're gonna pick the very best people for your team. That has nothing to do with the way God chooses. And so I've likened it before. Our trying to fix God and his supposed favoritism is like taking green and yellow luminescent paint and, and applying it to the Mona Lisa, you know. I'm going to just fix a few things on the Mona Lisa here with my paint, you know. And that's us trying to fix God, trying to make him uh, be a better God. And now the language of Romans 8.29 itself I want you to notice it, the specific language here. It doesn't say he knew something about someone, you see. It's simply not what it says. It says he knew them. He knew them. The only addition is the word for knew. He knew beforehand. But this regular language in Scripture uh, where in Jeremiah, I knew you in your mother's womb. Well, he knows about everybody in every womb, everywhere. But he's saying to Jeremiah, I was intimate with you and set my love upon you and distinguished you even in your mother's womb. I knew you, you see. Or in Psalm 1-6, he says he knows the way of the righteous. Well, he knows well the way of the wicked. He knows exactly what the wicked have done. And they will be judged for it. It's not like, oh, I don't know what y'all have been doing. I had not been watching you. I've only been watching the righteous. No. It's, I know the way of the righteous. I'm intimate with them. I'm, uh, I've set my love upon them. It's the same word, of course, in Adam, knowing Eve. Or as I have here in Psalm 37, the Lord knows the days of the blameless. Or his language there in Matthew 7 when he says to those who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. He doesn't mean, I never knew anything that you ever did. I never knew what happened with your life. He meant, I never was intimate with you. You never trusted me. We were never in relationship. And so Romans 8.29 is talking about relationship. It's talking about knowing us intimately beforehand, uh, before time. Not knowing beforehand who would believe. He knew us. And that's why in the, the second term, he predestines. You see, always bring those together because they're always brought together in Scripture. He loved us and he destined us. It's, it's not this willy-nilly declaration of what will happen. It's because of His love for us that He set it in motion that we would come to Him and we would know Him and we would receive His salvation and be with Him forever because He loved us. He loved us. Therefore, He predestined us. And that's why I've included, at least you can look up those, ter- those verses there, beginning with Ephesians 1. I already quoted that one. He, in love, He predestined us for adoption. You see, that's Paul's language. The predestination is not some abstract act, some heartless choice of God. Why did He love the particular ones? We don't know. And if we talk more fully, we would talk about how God offers His love to every individual in the world through the gospel. Why He takes no for an answer for so many who reject the gospel, I can't explain that to you. 
But his offer is real. He really means it. If they would come to him, he would forgive them. He wept over Jerusalem. We said, I would have gathered you like a mother hen would her, her baby chicks, but you wouldn't have me. So there is this love of God that offers itself to the whole world. But when many say no, God leaves it that way. Even though his offer is sincere of love. But for those upon whom he has loved before the foundation of the world, as we put it, he will not take no for an answer. And he so works in their hearts so that they do see Christ and they do respond and they do come to faith in Christ. But we must connect predestination with love. That's why in Colossians 3 he says, You're the elect of God, holy and beloved. See? Paul just naturally thought that way. You're the elect of God. You're the beloved ones from Him. Or 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, Knowing, brethren, you're beloved of God. We know His choice of you. You're the beloved. Always he pulled those two things together. Brethren, beloved by the Lord because God has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2. And all the passages in Deuteronomy that say the same thing. So, this, this language in Romans 8 can't be bent to say something it doesn't say. That he looked ahead to see who would believe. It's part of that language that you see in Paul everywhere. Loving, predestining. Loving, electing. He foreknew us and he chose us or predestined us. And see there uh, in your paper something we must remember no one would believe on his or her own, okay? So, for God to look ahead to say, hands off, okay? Hands off, and let's, let's try to suppose God walking alongside history, okay? He's not involved. He's not doing anything in anybody's heart. He's just kind of walking beside history to see who would believe and who wouldn't. Well, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? Because Jesus says, no one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. No one, not one single person, will respond to me unless the Father works in his heart to draws him. To draw him. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 3, there is none who seeks God by nature. There's none of us that will seek God. If we have sought God, if we have responded, it's because the Father has drawn us. That's a powerful word, like drawing fish in a net. The Father has drawn each one of you who believe. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think that God came after you to pull you to Himself to embrace you forever because His love was set on you from eternity and He had to have you and drew you to Himself. That's the language of Jesus. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. John 6, 37 and following. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. I will raise them up on the last day. And that's why I have these arrows. Uh, to complete the illustration, you might uh, put an X over a couple of the arrows in each illustration. We tend to think election does this. Everybody's trying to get to God, but God's saying, nope, nope, nope. You can't. Okay? That's, that's the way we tend to think of election in the negative. That is though election populates hell. Okay? But election populates heaven. Because the second illustration is the way it is. And God is saying, nope, nope, nope. 
But to these people who are going away from God because nobody seeks God and God is saying, I won't take no for an answer. I won't take no for an answer. I won't take no for an answer. I'm going to draw you to myself even though initially you will not have me. (laughs) That's what he finds in every one of our hearts. A person who will not have him. A person who does not want him. And he works to draw them to himself. Yes, they freely give themselves eventually. They freely believe. They make their own choice. And they do trust him. But it's because of what he did in their hearts. What he accomplishes in their heart. By the way, you might be interested in this. If you want to find that phrase that he picked those who believe, you have to go to the Book of Mormon. Okay? This is how John, uh, uh, Mr. Smith, Joseph Smith, translated it from the golden tablets, okay, in uh, what he called Egyptian hieroglyphics, okay. He makes Jesus say this, instead of what Jesus really did say, you did not choose me, but I chose you, he has Jesus say this, it is because of their belief in me that I have chosen them out of the world. Naturally, a human being would come up with something like that. Finally, I want you to look at Romans 9 because it is such a strong and helpful passage in this. If there was ever a time for Paul to say, here's how God did it when he was choosing Jacob over Esau, he looked ahead to see that Jacob was going to believe. Okay? And he thought, I don't want Esau because he's not going to believe. I want Jacob because he's going to be a believer. That's emphatically what didn't happen. It's the opposite point Paul is making here. Verse 10, not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, that is Esau will serve Jacob, Jacob was the younger, just as it is, I'm sorry, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. Now, hated is used here in reference to a comparison, that if, if a man loves, had two wives and he loved the one wife, the other one would say would be hated, even though he may really care for that person, that, that woman. So that's the language here briefly. But look how specific. And it's, it's according to his choice. And notice what he contrasts, election and works. We usually contrast, it's either you trust Him or you're bringing your works before Him. Either trust Him helplessly with no works or you're trying to show your works to earn His favor. Here, it's choice and works. He says, so that it doesn't depend on something that Jacob did or didn't do, something Jacob believed or didn't believe, something, some works that he had in one way or another, some goodness about Jacob. He says, it was done before any of that happened so that it couldn't depend on anything they had done, only on God's choice. And I don't know how you could make the point any stronger than that. So we're faced with the sovereignty of God. 
absolute sovereignty of God that makes us ask in the end, then, as many of us have, why me? Why me? You mean, I'm just like everyone else. I'm just as evil as anyone else. There's nothing that singled me out. Was it for my looks? <laughs> Was it because I had lost weight? You know, Was it because I went to the right school? It wasn't. It was just because he set his love on me. And I have nothing to look at anybody and say, I'm better than them, but I'm just like them. And I would have gone and done just the same rejection of God if, <coughs> excuse me, if he had not worked in my heart. And so, <clears throat> in spite of all my wickedness, he still came after me. And we only know a little bit of our sin, the outer edges of it. He knows the terrible depths of our sin. And still before time, he knew me. He set his love on me even then. Even knowing the extent of my sin, he set his love on me. And if he set his love on you before the world, dear friends, it means he's loved you forever. Or as they say in Alabama or the, the uh, Delta of Mississippi forever. <laughs> He's loved you forever. And that's why He drew you. And you see, in the context of Romans 8, that's why He talks so much about the love of God. Nothing shall separate us from what? The love of Christ. In the end, from the love of God in Christ. That's where he begins in verse 29 with the love of God before the foundation of the world. And that's why He's arguing nothing will separate you from this love. Nothing. How glorious, how wonderful that God has loved us before the world, that He's loved us forever. And if you do away with this love and this predestination, you do away with all the promises of God. There's no promise that's good unless God is sovereign. Unless He's Lord, every promise can be canceled out. Nothing then can stop him from doing you good. No power on earth can stand in the way of his doing you good. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand because he's loved you beforehand and he's predestined you to be his forever. And I would urge you, don't erase that doctrine because it's weird or hard. Embrace it and embrace Paul's praise of God in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, who chose us before the foundation of the world. And look at these hymns. We'll end with these. You and I ask, why me? Well, there are a lot of hymnists that have asked that. One that we sing a lot of is how sweet and awful. But I hope you'll meditate on these passages because they say it so well of what we, where we could have been and the only reason we're where we are is because God loved us. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve that come, than come, t'was the same love that spread the feast, that is, gave the Lord Jesus Christ, that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. See? The love that's, that gave Christ is the love that drew us in. And if He hadn't drawn us in, we still would have refused Him. Oh, 
thank you, Lord, that you drew us in. Josiah Condor, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me hast cleansed and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee. T'was sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind." My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. If that's not sweet, I don't know what is. And then this final hymn, written around the turn of this uh, (coughs) 1900. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew, he moved my soul to seek him as he was seeking me. It was not that I, uh, not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. Thou didst reach forth Thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on Thee took hold as Thou, dear Lord, on me. I find, I walk, I love, but oh, the whole of love is but my answer, Lord, to Thee. For Thou wert long beforehand with my soul Always thou lovest me. Let us pray. Lord, we rejoice in your great sovereignty. We rejoice in the love that was given us before the foundation of the world, that sweetly drew us in, that keeps us and preserves us so that none can snatch us out of our hand, the love that causes all things to work together for our good. Nothing can stop that sovereign love from working so that nothing will separate us from it and that indeed we will be brought to that final day and raised from the dead and completely conformed to Christ and enter into the new heavens and the new earth which you've prepared in your mercy and love. O Lord, it is all of you. For as Jesus said, no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. Thank you, Lord, that those whom you foreknew, you predestined. And those you predestined, you called. And those you called, you justified. And those you justified, you glorified. We praise you for your sovereign salvation. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. my fears away won't you chase my fears away